Hey folks, welcome to Make It, Bake It, Grow It, a business owner's guide to surviving the market. I'm Ali Coy, owner of Barefoot Daughter Botanical Body Care, and I'm on a mission to find out how small business thrives online, farmers markets, and selling in stores. Heading into my fifth year of business, I'm still trying to figure out how to make it all work. In this program, I'll be interviewing vendors at the Salt Spring Island Farmer's Market and other creative entrepreneurs on the highs and lows of small business. Happy Make It Thursday, everyone. I have a soap making workshop coming up at the Herbal Gathering in Comox Valley this weekend. Mine is on the Friday at 2 p.m. And uh, you can get $25 off uh, your ticket for the gathering with code all lowercase Ally A L Y twenty five as in the numbers O F F. I'll put those in the show notes. I was very honored to be invited to be a teacher this year at the Herbal Gathering because two years ago I went as a participant and vendor, as I normally do, and it's just you know I'm so inspired and going to all the different classes and being around my people basically just herbalists radical herbalists who are getting out there in the world and sharing their knowledge and it's just so relaxed and good food and a good place and good people. So I'm very excited to arrive, do my workshop and uh, and then, you know, relax for the rest of the weekend slash still vent. I always just have that in the back background. I'm also putting on a self-publishing workshop from all the things I've learned along the way. Uh, I'm going to do that July 1st, Monday, July 1st from 2 to 4 p.m. at Seven Ravens uh, Farm. And I'll have more info on that online too. So for my book, Unpacked, a memoir of checked baggage, it is coming out June 11th, which is next Tuesday. So if you've been listening from the beginning, I've gone through all the various steps along the way, the edits and more edits and the writing retreats and putting myself yeah, through a lot to get this to where it is now. And I have the copies in my hand, not at this very moment, but, um, and the launch is happening on my 33rd birthday on June 11th. And it'll be at the Salt Spring Public Library from 6 to 8 p.m., And then afterwards, there's an after party at a barge in Ganges Harbor called the Dump Shine. And I'll be performing a few chapters with a friend, Trisha Spire, playing a cello behind me. So she'll be playing kind of background uh, music and then I'll read a chapter and then she'll play a song. I'll read a chapter, she'll play a song. And I'm really excited for that. And just to celebrate that we're finally at this stage. We all did it together. I do have a contest going on Instagram. If you like the post and follow Barefoot Daughter Body Care and then tag two friends who would be interested, it enters you to win a free autographed copy of the book that I'll announce uh, June 11th at 11 a.m. So you can look at more info at barefootdaughter.com slash unpacked. You can order a signed copy of the book. Um, and I will be sending them out now, even though the launch isn't till the 11th, but it'll probably arrive in the mail then. And afterwards, um, you can buy through Ingram Spark, Amazon, or through your local bookstore. You can go to, to any bookstore and then they can order it in. And so I really want to support people going to their local bookstores 
it, they don't have to have it on the shelves for you to order it through the bookstore and have continue that support instead of going straight to Amazon or um, Ingram Spark. The bookstores that do have my book so far, um, it's Boland Books in Victoria and Volume One Bookstore in Duncan. And for the book launch tour, I'll be in the, at the Herbal Gathering this weekend, and I'll have a few copies on sale. I also have ebook copies uh, for sale in person. It's a download code that you can um, download right to your device, and I'll have those on little cards. June 11th on Salt Spring, uh, June 20th to 22nd at the Campbell Bay Music Festival. I'll be vending there, but I'll have copies on hand. Then the next is uh, July 20th at the Spiral Cafe in Victoria, and Trisha will also be playing behind me for that show. July 29th at Massey Books in Vancouver. August 1st, Art Swells. I'm going to be performing a chapter and vending, and I'm pretty sure doing a self-publishing workshop there as well. August 18th in Montreal. August 22nd, 25th at Free Times Cafe in Toronto. August 28th at St. John, New Brunswick at a house show, and then September in Halifax. I haven't secured the location for Halifax quite yet. If you sign up for the newsletter on barefootdaughter.com, you actually get the first chapter sent to your mailbox, and you also get updates. I tried to go for weekly updates, but it's more like monthly updates right now, so I won't bombard your mailbox. So this episode is sponsored by Barefoot Daughter. You can always order herbal soaps and botanical body care online at barefootdaughter.com. And you get 20% off, actually, with discount code, all caps, MAKEIT19. This episode is also sponsored by Prodime Zoho One. It's an all-in-one CRM, client relationship management software. It's really great for organizing all your inventory, all your banking, um, emails, customer lists you know you can give have tasks like okay you drop off a sample you can make a little task to follow up in a week you followed up oh you make a note oh they want more um, info on it you know send them a wholesale pamphlet things like that Um, prodime helps small and medium-sized businesses to organize and grow by using a comprehensive integrated cloud-based suite of business software produced and maintained by Zoho Corporation and used by 45 million business owners around the world. So find out more at prodigm, P-R-O-D-I-G-M dot C-A. It's also sponsored by TSEC, Transition Salt Spring Enterprise Co-op. So if you're looking for a micro loan, uh, they are really looking for participants. So they have money and they want to support you in your green business. And what they're also doing is if you're looking for a rainwater catcher, they can supply the upfront, you know, $1,000 or $1,500, however much it costs. And then you pay back in increments uh, per month and you work that out for them. So it's a really great way and it's a low interest, like, you know, could be 6% or something like that. So it's a really great way to get those bigger items that's really hard to do all at once, but if it's a monthly payment plan, it makes it that that much more accessible. And we all know if you're on Salt Spring, a rainwater catcher is the way to go. And we talk about that in this interview coming up as well. 
As an entrepreneur, there are tons of peaks and valleys day to day and month to month. And here's a segment of the show called my Hilo moment of the month. It was of the week, but now we're doing it every month for, for now for the summer. So yeah, my high moment, definitely receiving copies of my book in the mail. I was just so excited opening that, that box and seeing multiple copies and it looks good and it feels good. And also I'm doing an initiative um, that we chat a little bit about in the interview, but for every paperback sold, a tree will be planted at the Seven Ravens Eco Farm. So having all those stacks of books, paperback books in my hands, it kind of relieved that guilt of like, oh, a lot of trees, you know, printed into these books. And I know there's a good message in it, but having that offset of carbon and that initiative of this isn't a hundred, this isn't just a hundred books of my story that I worked so hard on. It's a hundred potential trees to be planted and giving back into the atmosphere. Another high moment, uh, definitely getting into the bookstores in Victoria and I'm on the cover of the fishbowl magazine for this month. So, uh, that's pretty funny to see my picture, um, in, in and around town. And it's definitely given uh, the book launch a, a bit of a buzz. So, <laughs> and my low moment of the month, um, yeah, there's been so many highs and lows, but basically the day that the magazine came out, I was celebrating like, woohoo, all right, I'm on the fishbowl. And then I spilt coffee on about 10 copies of my book. And so I'm calling those a collector's item of Unpacked, a memoir of checked baggage. And I was joking about how it's a physical manifestation of uh, self-sabotage outlined in chapter four. <laughs> but um, some some of my friends don't mind the reduced copy of the, uh, the, the coffee edition of Unpacked. But I was very mad at myself in the moment, for sure. But yes, there have been emotional breakdowns, breakthroughs, sleepless nights, endless to-do lists. But it's all happening. And after Tuesday, I mean, there's always the next thing. But this feels like a big, huge accomplishment that getting to this point of it being published out in the world and out of my control and out of my hands a little bit, which is scary and exciting at the same time. So today, today's show, I interviewed uh, Michael Nichols from Seven Ravens Permaculture Farm on how the farm began 30 years ago, the ripple effect of his permaculture initiatives on Salt Spring and in Kenya and Tanzania, the community future vision for Salt Spring, permaculture as a business model, and how it's the way of the future. As always, I'll have takeaways at the end of the show. Welcome, Michael Nichols from Seven Ravens Farm. So when did Seven Ravens begin? When did that all start? Well, it first started in uh, 1988. I arrived on Salt Spring uh, in early February, and uh, I, had been, I had spent three months looking for property all over British Columbia and the Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island, and really wasn't uh, able to find anything and had almost given up and was thinking about uh, coming back the following year. And a friend of mine, uh, St. Clair McCall's brother, John, uh, had told me about um, St. and Salt Spring Island. And uh, the entire time I'd actually been 
dowsing for land with a big ordnance survey map and a crystal. And it kept on telling me I should go to Salt Spring. And um, I kept on ignoring it because I thought Salt Spring would be too expensive and I wasn't really prepared to spend too much money um, in finding a piece of land. So anyway, I um, stumbled upon... Uh, John suggested that I go and visit his brother Saint because uh, Janet was having her second child and uh, Saint was working and so uh, wanted me to uh, help chop wood and clean the house and uh, um, help Janet out a bit, which we were really happy to do. And uh, during that time, in fact, on the very first day, uh, my girlfriend and I uh, saw this listing at um, one of the real estate agencies and Pemberton Homes and... Um, yeah, it said, uh, buy your own Stanley Park. So I thought, uh, that sounds good. So we went and had a look at it, and it was the right place right off the bat. Can you explain dowsing? What is that? So dowsing is, there's various different ways of dowsing. You can douse for water where you're using uh, sticks, and uh, you're trying to find the veins of water, and you're putting that intention into your exploration when you're looking for something. And the sticks will react immediately when there is a vein of water underneath. And then if you get two cross sections, that's a good place to dig a well. But you can also douse for other things by asking, having a question and intention. And uh, then you can use a crystal or anything really and uh, give it intention and then um, ask the question. On a map or like standing on physical ground? Um, anything. Yeah. So I've heard know, about it with gold, gold mining, like on a map. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so that's basically I was looking for my pot of gold. Right. <laughs> and I found it through through this dowsing method. And basically the uh, the crystal, I was moving the crystal back and forth across the map. And every time it came over Salt Spring, huh. the crystal started to turn wow. and everywhere else it just swung back and forth. And so I knew that Salt Spring was the place to go. But I... I yeah. didn't. I didn't believe it until I got here. Where were you coming from before? Uh, Guelph, Ontario, where I had uh, done my um, agricultural degree at university. Have you always been interested in farming and permaculture? And like from a young child, were you always into it? Like with your family? I was interested. We grew up in Switzerland, and so um, being in Switzerland, we went for walks every day in the forest. So. Um, I had a love for nature. Then when we moved to Canada, I, uh, we had some massive oak trees across the street, so I was really fascinated by the trees. And then I think it all really changed in grade six or grade five, something like that, when I had to... Um, uh, we, we were growing some corn at school. And uh, then I went off to Spain that summer for the summer, and when I came back, my corn plants were 12 feet tall and had three cobs on each and I just thought wow that's I like this growing stuff mm -hmm. so um, yeah I had a fascination and um, then I think uh, uh, it was when I went to Australia and I was uh, uh, working in Australia when I was 18 I left home and um, then I ended up on farms and I just thought this is such a great way to live being out in the fresh air all the time and out in the country and no stress of driving mm. and then when you went back to Guelph did you started a tree planting company talk a little bit about that yeah I <clears throat> um, I had been planting to make my money for university uh, for all the years and uh, after I finished 
uh, university, I was uh, planting, I ended up planting in total for 25 years uh, all over Canada, but I think in uh, 1986, I started uh, with Grand River Conservation Authority. They are uh, <clears throat> based after the Mississippi Conservation Authority, so they're looking after reforestation of a huge area and water conservation and all that kind of stuff. And I asked them if uh, they had any uh, hand planting crews um, and if they did piecework, and they said no, they didn't. So I said, well, I'd like to be your contractor. So they suggested that we try it out for a year, and it worked out really well. And then I, I started my own tree planting company in, in Guelph. And it was a short, in the beginning it was six weeks, and uh, by the time that over the years we got better and better, and then we got it down to about three weeks to plant half a million trees. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. And then, so you moved out here and you found this land with um, a, an abundance of trees. And have you always had the the vision to have this conservation? Like you're you're quite focused on, yeah, con the conservation, the reforestation, um, and then that has led to other projects. But when did the permaculture courses start? Uh, permaculture courses started. Well, in Africa, they started probably about 25 years ago. And uh, I really owe all of this, in a way, to uh, Dave Phillips. Um, he told me that um, <clears throat> he had asked me what I do when I met him once. Um, we had a sauna, and he said, uh, what, what do you do on Salt Spring? And I told him, and he said, wow, that sounds like permaculture. And I said, what's permaculture? And uh, so he gave me a book, The Introduction to Permaculture by Bill Mollison, the founder of uh, permaculture. And uh, I read it and I was absolutely fascinated. So then I started going to Australia while I was working in Africa. Um, I would go for um, trips from Africa to Australia for one month, two months at a time to uh, travel around Australia, meeting all the different permaculture farmers and working on their farms as a woofer and um, gaining knowledge and then I found one fellow Jeff Nugent and I asked him if he'd like to come to Salt Spring to run a course and after that I started running courses small courses and then really doing lots of work in Africa and the school opened about 10 years ago and we ran it for the last 10 years and uh, we've just recently closed it because I want to pursue some other interests. So what brought you to Africa in the first place? Like what was, and where, where exactly in Africa were you focused? I first went to uh, Kenya in uh, uh, 1989 and uh, with a girlfriend and um, ended up uh, spending the next um, almost, well, I'm still going to Kenya, probably this, this fall again, uh, for basically the last 30 years I've been going there. And when you're there, what does it, what does it look like when you arrive and you have a, a crew of maybe like ten people from the permaculture course, or something like that, and and what is your kind of, yeah, what do you get up to over there? Well, just I'll give you a brief history. Basically, I went there as a tourist. After two weeks, I thought I can't be sitting on beaches when there's so much uh, work to be done because there's so much slash and brown culture in Kenya at the time. So I started getting into reforestation. Uh, then we set up uh, 50 tree nurseries around the country with schools. 
Um, that went really well, and then that led into uh, doing introducing permaculture to schools, and then that was seven years of uh, uh, doing seven schools in Kenya with permaculture projects, with tree nurseries and permaculture projects, and the idea was uh, within a week or sort of two weeks to basically transform a schoolyard into a permaculture farm, and then the kids really were incredible how how much they found out and then uh, my friend Kai Fox came with me to Kenya one year and uh, suggested that he film um, at the schools and then he followed one of the some of the kids home and said show me what you've done and he said have you ever followed any of the kids home to see what they're doing and I said no and he said you've got to come tomorrow you're going to just be blown away so I did and at that point I thought that's it. We can't just teach seven schools. We have to try to teach permaculture to millions of kids. So then we opened up this, these teacher training centers, and um, we established five teacher training centers throughout Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda over the last uh, six years. And uh, those teacher training centers are basically teaching uh, 1,000 school teachers each year, and those 1,000 school teachers teach on average 700,000 kids every year about permaculture. And uh, they transform their schoolyards into the same thing that we were doing. And so now uh, we've got more than probably close to 2 million kids at this point in time that have been trained in permaculture. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So what were they doing at home that, that inspired you? They were just doing their own gardens and well in, in Kenya basically uh, the main staple the main diet is um, corn and maize they call it maize and um, it's more or less it's closer to cattle corn than it is to uh, sweet corn that we know and uh, they grow it it takes a long time to grow it takes a lot of energy lots of nutrients and uh, over the years uh, lots of uh, international companies have been going in there and offering help but the help is never really real help it's always how to then sell more chemicals and more fertilizers to the farmers and gmo seeds and so basically the africans are spending tons and tons of money and depleting their soils damaging their soils through all the chemicals and getting sick with all the chemicals that they're spraying and then the gmo is not good either and cancer is on a huge rise there and so uh, we felt that it was really important to teach about organic agriculture and about um, using manures, which now they almost look upon as dirt and they burn piles of manure instead of ever incorporating it back into the land. And um, then we also were really focused on diversity of food because um, uh, the more diversity you have, then the healthier your diet. So what we saw the kids doing is taking these lessons home and transforming their family farms from uh, growing one crop to growing 40 crops and tree nurseries. And uh, one of the examples that we saw of this young boy, he transformed his family farm from an uh, income of $200 a year to uh, $20,000 within the very first year. And they set up fish farming, they set up tons of swales, which are ditches on contour to collect water. They grew 40 different crops and uh, the whole family was just thrilled. And I was honored with being given a rooster, which is the absolute ultimate gift that you can give anybody in that culture. Mm. So. Um, what I love about uh, the idea of permaculture is it's not like just one person has all this knowledge and 
they teach the people. Like, you teach other people how to teach other people. So it just has this ripple effect. For people who don't know, I know it's hard to define permaculture in one sentence, but what is, yeah, what is permaculture? Permaculture is basically you get more of what you want. So it is a systems approach to looking at how to manage land in the most um, economical way and the most environmentally sound way possible. So there's no chemical use. There's huge diversity in food crops. It's all about uh, water harvesting, uh, gathering energy from the sun. Uh, there's three main principles in permaculture. It's uh, people care, earth care, and fair share. So those are the principles, and then there's a whole bunch of, um, uh, um, I can't remember the, the word for it, but uh, um, there, there's, uh, there's, basically you're, you're looking at how to make the ultimate use of any piece of land. Right, just high efficiency. Um, so this podcast is a small business podcast, and... I'm always so interested to hear how people take their passions and and make a living out of it. Like, what's your advice for other people who are farming, you know, into the permaculture and love it and teaching it? Like, is the model basically doing permaculture design courses or maybe flipping a hat, like going into a house and putting that um, gardens in there? Like, what's kind of the business model around permaculture? I think it's starting at home and creating your own permaculture garden, um, your own permaculture business. So a permaculture business could be based on anything. So if you have, for instance, a lot of trees, uh, you could start uh, and, um, you know, you have to thin trees out because there's too many trees. You could be taking those trees and chipping them up and then starting to make uh, soil. And then you would be selling soil perhaps on the side. Um, it's... Uh, I think it's about anything that you're really passionate about that really has meaning to you and then pursue that because that will open up all the doors. So whether you're interested in vegetable seeds or growing trees or teaching or consulting, um, it will, you'll find your own way once, once you know what it is that really feels good to you. Right, because there's so many different um, areas to permaculture so you can really hone in on what what drives you yeah it, it encompasses everything in life permaculture i mean it's permanence of culture which a friend of mine reminded me there is no permanent culture of course there isn't but there is the idea of how do we go into the 21st century through the 21st century and into the future in being able to maintain the world in a way that it is a regenerative system instead of constantly using, 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 and abusing. Um, how do we repair the world? How do we sustain ourselves, but always make the future better than what we actually found ourselves? And um, so anything, I mean, you know, you're, uh, you, you yourself are a soap maker, and that in itself is also permaculture. So maybe what you would do, as I think you already do, is you collect some of the materials yourself. And so then you're, you're, you're really honing in on all the things that you can harvest yourself to add to the products. Right. And what would be, because I, th I feel like permaculture is a lot about community, community building, like for Salt Spring example, 
what would be the ideal kind of permaculture situation? Like everyone harvesting rain, um, connecting the waterways. Like what's kind of your vision for an island like this? The vision for Salt Spring would be, firstly, we have an issue with water. Um, we have an overabundance of water in the winter and we have um, too little water in the summer. So uh, building ponds would be the very first approach, would be uh, a systematic approach, even finding out how the government might be able to give subsidies or tax reductions for people building ponds. It's not very expensive to build a pond. Uh, we've built uh, several ponds over the last few years. Uh, the cost is generally around three to five thousand dollars for a fairly large size pond, a million, million liter pond. So <clears throat> you can easily build a pond. You're trying to build a pond in places where it's going to hold the water. So you have to know what to look for in a landscape to be able to define, oh, this is a good spot for a pond. Um, then the, all the ponds could then be uh, connected to each other through pipelines so that the very top ponds can feed the lower ponds. I think all the water from the ponds should head out towards the main roads so that there are pipe stands along the road. So if there's ever a fire, there's immediate uh, connection for the fire department because if they're only coming up with 20 or 30,000 liters of water <clears throat> and that's gone very quickly, how are they going to refill without having to leave again? So if there's water available everywhere, then that's another thing. Then there's fish farming that can come out of it, and that would create tons of employment. And you know we're always we're now in a position of <clears throat> the wild fish being in danger of salmon. So we can grow fantastic uh, rainbow trout on the island here. So that just leads into more and more. And then we have water security. So water is absolutely the very very first thing. Um, for looking into the future, uh, it would also be a good idea to reduce the amount of um, coniferous trees around towns. Um, towns are vulnerable when there's a big forest fire. Um, putting in more deciduous trees around your own homestead and around uh, towns would be a good idea because then you, there's less uh, chance that the fire is going to actually destroy your home or destroy the, uh, the town. So <clears throat> water is number one, and then um, a way of farmers working together to create a larger uh, co-op station, maybe at uh, the Farmers Institute, where uh, everyone could be bringing their produce, and then there'd be a marketing department there that would actually then be able to use that food and distribute it throughout Salt Spring, and then even export excess off Salt Spring, and then have secondary manufacturing at the Farmers Institute, so that you know if there's an excess of apples, apple juice could be made, apple butters could be made, that could be an export item for Salt Spring, and the same goes for all the other products that we we can grow and do grow in abundance. Garlic is another good example. Yeah, because there's so many things coming off island in that costs so much at the at the grocery store but really we could all be processing that ourselves like within the you know just be a bit more cohesive with with the community um what uh, uh well there, that reminds me about the rainwater catchers that um tsec transition salt spring enterprise co-op they are doing micro loans for people to get rainwater catchers, which is a great initiative that people don't really know about, but they're trying to get the word out there. So that's one thing that kind of came to mind. about Yeah, rainwater catchment is fantastic. Um, 
unfortunately, you usually only get 5,000, 10,000 liter, maybe 20,000 liter tanks. So Ponds uh, are the way to go. Which is a, a huge amount of water if it's being used carefully and it uh, can be replenished. But uh, having a pond within a landscape, if there is an opportunity to have a pond, is much better because then you have, um, you know, that there's a lot of evaporation then going back into the environment here. There's, uh, you can set up gravity feed irrigation systems, which is one of the things that we've uh, done at Seven Ravens. So there's um, uh, rainwater catchment. And I think in the future too, within the building code, there should be that uh, houses have their own rainwater supply. Because as we go in and develop another 5,000, 10,000 homes, whatever it's going to be before we finally cap it, mm-hmm. uh, there's, <clears throat> there's always going to be a need for more and more water. The more holes we drill in the ground, the less water available generally. Uh, so if we can capture our own rainwater and then use it, that would be the better way of doing it. And it's, it's standard practice in many countries already. And what about solar panels? Do you think that's the way to to go for um, harvesting for energy, renewable energy? Hundred percent. Yeah, we we set up a um, a solar system at our place, and basically we have enough energy for I would say three hundred fifty five days of the year. There's about ten days of the year where we don't, where we have to turn on the generator for. Uh, two hours, three hours, and um, that then charges up the batteries again. But that only really happens uh, during a heavy snowfall when the panels are covered. So advice would be to put panels maybe into a field instead of on a roof where you can't access them in the winter. And then you can also change the angle. uh, If they're in the field, you can um, have special... Uh, ways of being able to change the angle of the panels so that there's uh, more summertime you you would make it flatter up to the sky and then in the winter you would angle it more to the south and um, so uh, I can't say enough about how impressed I am with the solar Mm -hmm. it's phenomenal so it's interesting that you've worked a lot with kids and you know they are the future Um, what are you doing now with uh, you, you have some initiatives going on with some school kids? Yeah, we started a program this uh, spring at uh, Sims, uh, Salt Spring Island uh, Elementary sc- or um, Middle School, sorry. And uh, both my daughters are going there. And I had read an article about um, uh, Thornberg, sorry, I can't remember her first name, Gre- Greta Thornberg from Sweden, and uh, her um, frustration with governments around the world that uh, everyone is saying oh yeah yeah we should talk about climate change but really in the end there's very little real stuff being done and um, so then she started going on strike and I since we can't go on strike on Fridays because the kids are not even at school I thought let's do something very proactive and positive and so we started up a a tree nursery at the middle school and uh, it's an indigenous tree nursery growing mostly maples and um, getting those, uh, we planted three pots per child. And uh, then the idea is that they go out and uh, each class writes out to 10 schools around the world. And those 10 schools then are challenged to do the same thing. And after uh, three cycles of this, there's basically 2 billion trees in the ground. So that, that's a way of, tree planting is really the answer to climate change because we need to sequester the CO2. The CO2 is the problem. Um, Well, people are the problem emitting the CO2, but if we can 
absorb the CO2 and fix it. And then instead of burning again when it's time to burn leaves or um, slash is to make hugel cultures, which is burying all the wood or grinding it up for chips. You could do that too. And then, uh, then you maintain the carbon in the atmosphere or, I mean, in the ground and not uh, releasing it into the atmosphere. Um, so um, the education about tree planting was really important and uh, we've started that project and uh, hopefully it'll continue for years to come and just start to create, uh, gain momentum. And how is it going so far from the, you've done the, the initial planting and have kids written to the other schools and are they responding or it's just in the first stages? It's, uh, it still hasn't uh, gone to the next stage. Unfortunately, it's, um, I'm, I have to go into the school next week and talk to each class about how uh, they're going to connect with all the other schools around the world. And um, so w my daughter suggested that I write a particular uh, letter that is basically then just a cover letter that they can send out to all the schools and they'll do the research about which schools they would like to connect with. Well, that's, I love how you think so big, you know. I, I love how you, you know, it's starting small, but then it has this ripple effect, which is really amazing. Um, and I also wanted to chat a bit about our initiative of my book coming out. And I was thinking about, you know, donating certain, you know, a dollar per book to some sort of charity. And then my dad actually gave me the idea to offset my own carbon of, you know, it's a 320 page book. Like it's a you know, big um, paper paperback. And so, uh, yeah. And so I had this idea that, that uh, working with you and what you're doing with the tree planting to for every paperback sold a tree will be planted so I'm very excited about that idea um, what would that entail basically like getting a sapling and and putting it in the ground and I know there's a lot more to it than just a tiny little sapling and that's it can you talk a bit about the process of planting these trees Sure. So at uh, Seven Ravens, basically, um, we've approached the whole forest in a, in a different way than the average um, forestry company or project. So we're looking at uh, not um, cutting anything that doesn't need to be cut, only cutting trees that are uh, diseased, dying or dead. And most of the dead trees now we're just leaving behind for... Um, for the wildlife and for uh, woodpeckers and bats and all the other stuff that consumes those. So they're called apartment buildings uh, for the wildlife. Then it's uh, making the highest use out of every single log that we take. But the one thing I've noticed after 30 years of being on, on the land there is that uh, we've planted over 7,000 trees within the forest. But of all the trees that are growing inside the forest now, I could count maybe 15 or 20 are natural seedlings that have come from nature and are growing now. Maybe, maybe there's 50 in total on the whole farm uh, and maple and uh, the odd cedar and balsam firs. Um, everything else seems to, unless there's a large opening, everything else seems to be eaten by the deer. Um, because there's there, there are browsers, there's lots of deer on the island, so there's a huge consumption. So what we've been doing is looking for ways of introducing the next generation of trees into the forest 
under the shade, so we need to climb some of the trees to reduce the shade. We're looking for species that are very shade tolerant. So the, the best, most shade tolerant tree to grow within the forest here are our indigenous uh, big leaf maples. Yew trees, which are very, very slow growing. Uh, cedar can be okay, but the California redwood is um, a tree that I've been starting to introduce. And that started with um, seeing how the, our climate is changing. It's getting hotter and drier. And so I figured I should go further south to look for the appropriate species because they're already experiencing those weather conditions. And the California redwood seems to be doing incredibly well. So we are, we've planted all these trees and we're maintaining them. So you first get uh, grow a tree either from seed or you buy a seedling. You grow it on for a year or two. Then once the tree is roughly three to four feet tall, so that might even be three or four years in the nursery, then you go into the forest, you open up the light conditions for it to, uh, to be properly planted. You have to dig a very deep hole, get all the rocks out, and then remove the subsoil from the topsoil. You might even bring in a little bit of extra soil and then put the tree into the topsoil in a depressed situation, unless you're in a waterlogged location. But generally, uh, throughout Salt Spring, you want the tree below the surface, maybe even... Um, half a foot to a foot below the surface and uh, have the land sloping towards the tree and then use all the rocks around the tree as a rock mulch because in the summer as there's a lot of heat they create condensation through the rocks and then the water gets recycled so it's uh, it is difficult to get trees started but i i've I've basically mastered the, the techniques of being able to grow these trees. And um, uh, last year, I think it was, we planted uh, 250 California redwoods in the forest and uh, we had two losses and there, not a single tree got watered for the entire summer. And it was a very dry summer last year. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it works. Is there anything else you want to add um, for those budding permaculture folks out there for words of advice that you've learned along the way? Well, it's, it's the most sane, most lovely way of going through life. Um, there's a huge community of people out there who are um, all uh, like-minded and um, there's, it's really every direction you turn in permaculture, there is job opportunities, work opportunities, money opportunities. Then there's, uh, all the connection with all the people in the community and then all over the world. And basically it's, um, it's the way of the future. That's all I can really say. Mm -hmm. So if people want, uh, you know, they see their backyard and they, they're really wanting uh, something more with their, their space, they can get in touch with you for a consultation? Is that yes, right? yeah, I, I do consultations for people and uh, usually it's between one to three hours and uh, I'm able to walk through their property or through their yard and help them figure out exactly what should go where, how to do it in the uh, most cost-effective way without importing tons of soil from off-island. That's another thing that we really need to do on island is to 
uh, deal with our waste and uh, to create uh, compost out of the waste instead of sending off all the cardboard and the wood chips and even the sewage that goes off and just gets dumped into uh, Victoria's sewage system and ends up in the ocean. Mm. Really, all of that could be composted and uh, incredible soil could be made out of it. So, um, yeah. I think there are some initiatives. I'm not sure where they're at right now uh, with the compost station, but yeah, you would be yeah great kind of on that transition salt spring board but i know you're very busy um and so now there's a farm shop at seven ravens mm-hmm. and and you have some of your raw uh slabs wood live edge wood slabs and benches and um and also some produce and and that's open friday to monday 10 to 5 as i believe yeah that's correct <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're trying to optimize on all the wood that uh, we harvest on the land. So we make uh, posts and beams, we make uh, siding, we make um, edge grain trim wood for around doors and windows, we make flooring, um, we sell big wide slabs, uh, always looking f- to optimize the value of the wood f- on the island and employ local people instead of shipping it off. It all started with when I was complaining about raw log exports to Asia and then thinking that, you know, I'm doing the same thing by sending off a logging truck off my land to the to the pulp mill or to wherever it's going to, to the mill. And so I thought I've got to start processing all the wood on island for myself. And it's created a, an incredible opportunity to to, um, you know, do, do something much more effective on my land and make a greater value out of it as well. Okay, thank you so much for coming in and for all the things you do and the people you inspire. So, um, Thank you, Ali. <laughs> and you can check out 7-ravens.com and I'll have all the links in the show notes as well. Thanks so much. Thank you. Some takeaways from the show. Number one. Woofing is a great way to get into farming, uh, gaining knowledge from those who have done it before you in whatever field you're going into, apprenticeships, internships. It's uh, hands-on learning and things you will not get from an e-course. Speaking of e-course, number two, courses are a great way to make money in anything you're doing. Better yet, don't just teach someone a skill, teach them how to teach others. That is a great way to get the message out there, to really make a change in the world. Um, Instead of just, as Michael was saying, you know, seven students teaching the teachers uh, thousands and thousands of students each year. Number three, get into schools for teaching uh, the next generation and influencing communities. Number four, think bigger picture and what's best for your community and for the environment because that is the best way for us all to continue on this world, on this land. Number five, the more diverse, the better the diet. Think of that in your business. Are you just focusing in on one aspect of the business or are there other income streams that you could have? You don't want to spread yourself too thin, (laughs) Allie, but uh, it's also important to think of the whole bigger picture of your business instead of just one aspect of it. Number six, find your own way within a subject like permaculture. So that encompasses everything in life. What aspects of it drives you? Focus in on that. Number seven, 
Is your business a regenerative system? Is it making the future of the planet and in your life better? Is it sustainable, basically? Number eight, how can your business be green? Can you run your business off of a solar panel, have a rainwater catcher, implement any of these green ideas? It can also be a part of your branding to have it that green angle. If people are choosing between one product and another, if it has that green edge, like, oh, they have a factory that's only run, that's run off solar panels or they're carbon neutral or they have initiatives that goes along um, with buying this product that makes me feel good and, and has me trust the people and the business and it's also better for the environment. So that's why I'm doing the initiative uh, for the tree being planted for every book because of many reasons, but it just goes along with what I'm saying, talking about in the book and with my own um, ethics and beliefs and branding. So number 10 kind of goes along the same lines. Um, if you're putting a book out there, uh, link it up with a, lo a local charity for a portion of the sales. If it's just a dollar per sale, you can even add a dollar to the sale cost of the book. Uh, it aligns with your brand. You can collaborate with that charity. So you can find uh, Michael at michaelpnichols at gmail.com. You can look on 7-ravens.com um, to check out uh, what they're doing with um, the permaculture consultations. Heidi Cowan, um, Michael's the partner, is also um, very involved in the in the Seven Ravens shop. And also uh, she does conscious design and planning for optimal health. So she is an architectural design consultant. If you're looking to design a home or just a space, um, she designed their eco home and uh, they integrate systems for water collection, solar power, gray water, source materials, consult on systems and plan for optimal positioning for solar gain, light and warmth. And she's really great to work with. Um, so you can just get in touch at 7-ravens.com and s see all of that. And then the shop is open Friday um, to Monday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And they have greens and eggs and, and veggies and wood and nice charcuterie boards and bread boards and my soap and some salves are in there as well. So the show is sponsored by my company, Barefoot Daughter, and you can uh, pro buy products online and also buy the book. So you can join the Facebook group, Make It, Bake It, Grow It, to talk about the episode and get notified of craft applications, uh, job opportunities, promotion of our all small businesses and articles and things. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It definitely helps to get it out there. And word of mouth is still kind of the tried and true version of marketing so you can tell your entrepreneurial friends to tune in this podcast is produced by me and hosted by the gulf islands community radio thanks for listening i'm ali coy and until the first thursday of the month keep making baking and growing it